You're listening to the Gonzo Star Wars Specials. I'm Alex Shaw. Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. This is the first of a series of six episodes, each dealing with a single Star Wars film. I have a lot to say about these films, and I'll be doing so in the typical Gonzo style, but to spice things up and to get some additional healthy debate going, I brought in guests. So my regular co-host for each of the six episodes is going to be Neil Taylor from Game Burst, and our guest this week is Gary Zantiriad-Blower. Hello, Neil and Gary. Hello. Hello. So for this opening gambit, I've had to decide whether to go for episode four or episode one, the original classic or the much-maligned reboot. I went for Phantom Menace for three reasons. One, because it's in the order that future generations will watch these films without someone else giving them a good reason why. Two, because I had a gut full of poison I want to vent on these prequels. And three, because I want to end on a more positive note, and I really like Return of the Jedi. Okay, so before we start this ball rolling, it's important to briefly summarise our background in Star Wars first. So in one paragraph... I got into Star Wars in the mid to late 80s. Some might say the darkest time for the series because the movies were over with no more in sight. The toys were no longer on sale and Star Wars was kind of over and gay in the playgrounds. I got back to it in the mid-90s heavily and bought a metric fuckton of toys, video games and other merchandise I saw and loved the special editions aside from Greedo shooting first and was totally buzzing for episode one when it came out. How about you, gentlemen? Actually, I'm kind of late to the Star Wars series. Um... I got into them before the prequels, which is probably a good thing. I first got into them when they were re-released in the cinema with the special editions. Because I was always more of a Star Trek person. But being able to watch Star Wars on the big screen when I've been so used to watching these movies on the small TV screen Mm. was just an experience that is unbelievable. All you have to say is that first scene from Star Wars A New Mm. Hope with the Star Destroyer and the Rebel ship. And that was it. Since then, hooked. Absolutely love it. Love this series. I love what the first three stand for. First three in movie-making order anyway. <laughs> and there's such a good story there that it just sucks you in and just keeps you coming back for mm. more, no matter how many times you watch them. And Gary? Well, I'm old enough to remember the first series of films, and um, I'm also old enough to remember that um, when I used to go to birthday parties when I was about six or seven years old, a man would turn up with a cine-reel camera, and he would play... The either the opening five minutes or the five minutes of the Death Star Trench scene. This is pre-video. Um, Christ! This is pre, pre-VHS, yeah. So you'd often go around to a party and then he'd turn up and he would show clips from Herbie and he would show clips from Star Wars and he'd always finish with the Death Star Trench scene. That would always be... Your kids like Star Wars? I got some Star so Wars for you. So for several years, for, before VHS, for several years, I, that was all I thought Star Wars was. <laughs> first two scenes, the demo the reel. opening five minutes. But then I saw Empire at the cinema when I was, I don't know, would have been 79, so it would have been, it would have been seven or eight. So, uh, and then like Neil, I was hooked and I saw the remastered ones and... I went to see The Phantom Menace with much anticipation. Mm. Okay, so that brings us all up to Phantom Menace.
One of the main inspirations for these podcasts is the Red Letter Media reviews of Star Wars Episode 1 and 2 and the upcoming Episode 3. You can find them on YouTube or their home site. They're over an hour long each, insightful, thorough, extremely entertaining, and also occasionally disturbing. I may cite an idea or two put forward by the reviewer Plinkett in these shows, as anyone might cite their own research. The next exercise is a variation on a section in his Episode 1 review. I'm going to ask Neil to summarise the first Star Wars movie, the 1977 Episode 4 A New Hope, in around 30 seconds. Imagine we've never seen these movies, Neil. Go for it. Uh, Star Wars New Hope is basically the tale of a, a young man called Luke Skywalker who goes on an, an adventure that takes him takes in stuff like rogues and droids and almost magic in a sense to defeat an evil empire and their super weapon. Along the way he, go, he, he learns life lessons and becomes a stronger, better human being. Okay, yeah. right. So Gary, episode one same restrictions, go. Star Wars episode one is the story of the collapse of a republic of star systems. Um, oh, just episode one, not the whole collapse. Yeah, it is. It is. It's the, it's the seeding of the collapse the of the republic, um, mainly driven by various political shenanigans and trade embargoes. Um, and the film actually plots uh, the story of two Jedi Knights who attempt to resolve a major conflict and trade dispute and uh, along the way uh, rescue uh, the, the queen of the Naboo. What's the Naboo? On... <laughs> <laughs> the Naboo is a uh, garden-style garden planet that looks vaguely like Venice. And um, along the along the base to escape and find themselves stuck on Tatooine, which is a desert planet, which then features in episode three of episode four onwards. Um, and there they meet a young boy called Anakin Skywalker, and through various adventures, uh, manage to escape and return back to Naboo, where the indigenous life forms on Naboo manage to overthrow the insurgents. Right, so here's the actual plot with no humour intended. Working backwards, Senator Palpatine wants to be Chancellor and have a private military force appear as a threat to the galaxy so he can later muster an army. So he creates a war. That's what happens in Episode 1. To do this, he somehow convinces the Trade Federation to blockade Naboo, preventing space trade. The Senate send two Jedi to ask the Trade Federation to not do that. The Trade Federation, on orders from Sidious, attempt to kill the Jedi with 30 seconds worth of poison gas. They bungle the attempt, and the Jedi escape to Naboo, which is now being invaded. They want to force the Queen of the whole planet to sign a treaty, making the invasion legal, which makes no sense whatsoever. The Queen escapes with the Jedi, and on the way to Coruscant to complain about the shitty treatment her people are getting, they pick up a stray boy from Tatooine. The Queen says to the Senate that the whole Trade Federation thing is because of General Zod being incompetent because the senator for her planet Palpatine told her to. Nobody agrees with her but they fire General Zod anyway and make Palpatine Chancellor. Then the Queen goes back to her planet to force the Trade Federation off by means of two CGI armies that we care nothing about fighting on an endlessly flat grass plane, a space battle containing a stray boy and nobody else where he does a Death Star exhaust port thing and her own guerrilla attack on the Thebe Palace where she holds the Trade Federation at gunpoint and makes them sign another completely logical treaty. Whilst this is happening one of the Jedi is killed the end couldn't the chancellor this is 
hypothetical, just have incited a whole bunch of terrorist cells on different planets to rise up and revolt against the Republic. I mean, poor people who had everything taken from them by the bureaucracy, people with nothing to lose rather than the Trade Federation who seem to have nothing to gain. Then when they start blowing up starports, then get to the position of Chancellor by less nefarious means and suggest an army to track them down and destroy the terrorist cells in retaliation. I mean, I know it's heavy-handed, but stranger things have happened. I think with uh, what George was going for was, look, here's a big army. We need a big army too, kind of thing, cracking off. And perhaps the terrorist one might have been hmm. more, more a Sith trick, actually, because it's more insidious, hmm. considering he is Darth Sidious. Yeah. This um, was in 99, being written throughout the mid-90s, obviously, so there would be no restrictions on things like, basically, terrorism, and it would have been actually acceptable in 99 to have something, like, effectively implied that way. After 2001, no way. It's kind of funny, because this all starts because of taxes really mm. if you read the scroll it's all because of taxes inform the emperor that the jedi temple has been sealed yes my lord annie what the annie little annie Roger, i am no longer oh, anakin skywalker these are some nice adults you fupa jaja it is hey. very important uh, uh, that you never speak to me again what's that happened to you so burn your face what's that happened to you Homie, my main man, quickly, before the Separatists attack, get into the escape pod. If this is escape, then we're the pod. The first and biggest mistake people make about Phantom Menace is to hone in on Jar Jar Binks, which is an oversight. Jar Jar Binks is a clown dancing outside the burning wreckage of your childhood home. He's an easy distraction from the simple fact that this film is fundamentally broken. The problems arise when you give a man who's not very good at writing scripting duties, and then, despite the fact that he's no good at directing, point the same guy behind the camera. Now, George Lucas, who's going to be getting some wrath today, made both of those decisions. He was rightfully, due to prior creative responsibility, executive producer of this movie, but he made the decision to write the scripts himself and to film it himself, despite the fact that there was a world of better screenwriters and directors out there. By comparison, arguably the best film in the saga, and my favourite, is The Empire Strikes Back, written by Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett, directed by Irvin Kirshner, with George on story credits, which basically makes him an ideas man, something he's good at. I love Spider-Man, but a Spidey movie written by Stan Lee would be an atrocious mess. Ideas men work best by just throwing out interesting things. It's up to the writers to give those things form and purpose. I think it's, there's more to it than that as well. Um, did you go out, have you guys, I think you could, you've both got the DVD mm-hmm. of The Phantom Menace. Yep. The two-disc one, mm-hmm. yeah? Yep. If you, if you watch the extras, it, it becomes quite obvious that The Phantom Menace was a classic example of where, um, because it was a Lucas's project where his company was, was making it, he was writing it, he was directing it, they had all the time in the world so they could take as long as they want. It was done when it was finished. They basically had a limitless budget so they could spend as much money as they wanted. They could you know, do whatever they, they wanted. And effectively what they did was take the kitchen sink and virtually everything else in the house and throw it at it and hope that it would stick. Mm. So... It's a classic example of of a lack of editorial control over what was being done and and a, a huge lack of scope. It's not just that. I think that George Lucas really needs someone to stand next to him and go, No. No, George. Yeah. 
No. Absolutely. It's like Michael Jackson. He needs someone honest, someone who's got his best interests at heart and says, no, 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 hold back on this one. Maybe reconsider. Yeah, exactly. So I mean by editorial control. It needs to be someone there saying, why do you want to do that? What's the, you know. Explain like, yourself. Um, another a good analogy is, the, you know, when you see these kind of cookery programs, like MasterChef, you know, when they have like um, prospective contestants yeah. come on. And one of them, and they do the, the initial test, and one of them will cook an amazingly tasty meal with five ingredients. And then another one will come along, and they will literally put 75 ingredients in it, and it will just be an, an inedible mm. mess. And, and, and basically, Lucas, given, given limitless time and limitless money, will do that. He'll just keep adding stuff to it and 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 adding stuff to it until he thinks he can add no more to it rather than it being, we want to tell a story that goes from A to B and these are the points in between. There's this famous quote from Rick McCallum who was the uh, other exec producer and the only man who could possibly have stood up to Lucas because he's been there since the beginning uh, saying in a positive note, there's just so much stuff on screen, it's so dense, there's just so many things going on, as if that's always a good thing. I mean, maybe like once or twice you could have a shot that's overwhelming with the amount of stuff going on, but the problem with the special editions was, and Clinkett said this, they just kept throwing crap in the background, as like, like some kid running around going, look at me, look at me, when other more important stuff is supposed to be going on. Yeah, it, it's very distracting. Uh, there's only a few scenes in that movie that needs to have a lot of things going mm. on. Probably the battle scenes need a lot going on because it's a battle. Uh, the Coruscant scene needs to be fairly crammed because this is meant to be the home of the Galactic yeah. Empire. Yeah. Sorry, it's Galactic Republic. Republic at this point, yeah. Um, so you need to establish that this is a very busy, dense world, which you don't get. And the funny thing that always throws me, when we first see Naboo, which as Gary's described as a garden planet, which is very true, mm-hmm. There's meant to be loads of people all suffering, and we barely That's see That's true. We only anybody. ever see the security guards in the palace. This, up until the end, Naboo suddenly has a, a population boom, and there's everybody there. But the first half of this movie, where we are seeing Naboo, which is meant to be trade blockaded, and there's meant to be people starving, or we assume that's what's happening anyway, there is nobody at all. How are people starving on a lush, temperate, green planet? We saw the fields in episode two. Why aren't they growing corn? While we're on the subject of Naboo, because this is the thing that I found the most difficult in, in The Phantom Menace. Okay, so first of all, Naboo is uh, being subject to this blockade. What does Naboo trade in? Uh, grass. Cause it's Clever ha- special, <laughs> special hats. Dresses. Okay. Definitely, it's got to be dresses, because look how many outfits leather. the Queen has. That's the first thing. Um, why, is, why is Naboo significant? They never explain why the trade route would go via Naboo. Yeah. I mean, in space... You, you know, they have hyperdrives. They can bend space. Yeah. So why would a planet be able to to govern traders? I mean, what I, the, I mean, watching it again, trying to make sense of it, it's about the tenth time I've seen it now. What it sounds like to me is that Naboo is the one that's imposed the tax. So therefore, Naboo is like is is basically funded by taxing a trade route. But in space, you can't have a trade route. It's space. Right? It's 1080. It's space. We'd already established that in 4, 5, and 6, which came before it. So I just never understood how you could tax trade routes in space. It makes no sense whatsoever, unless, you know, you had to drop things off there and then they distributed it to, to other planets within their system or something. I don't know. But that never made any sense. And, and just to the point on your... The threat, you know, the perceived yeah. threat, it's it's laughable throughout because in the, I don't want to talk about the original, the, the Star Wars New Hope too much, but in Star Wars New Hope, 
there is the threat in that film is genuine. You actually feel terrified of the Empire of Stormtroopers look scary as hell. Because they're huge and all-encompassing. Yeah. Well, they, they just look frightening. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Battle droids... Look like crap, I Yeah. Do not look frightening in the They're all spindly, space. and it's like they were designed to be the exact... You know, the, 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 the perfect victim for a lightsaber attack. And they make comedy noises, like... Roger, Roger, Roger. And things like that. They must be dead by now. Destroy what's left of them. Check it out, Corporal. We'll cover you. Roger, Roger. Uh oh. What is going on down there? We lost the transmission, sir. It's you know they they're about as non-threatening as you get, and then whenever you see them with with the prisoners, you know they're just like these idiotic mannequins that don't really. You know, they they got it better in the later... Yeah, they tried to butch uh, them up by making the super battle droids. The super battle droids do actually look pretty terrifying, but those battle droids just look stupid. They, I mean, even compared to... Uh, I can't remember his, his number was now, like ID 741. GK421. No, yeah, is it him, the bounty hunter in... Um, oh, IG88. That's the one. You know, he, they should have made him like him. He is terrifying. You know, you interestingly, know, I don't want to mess in with him. the Gendy Tarkovsky's uh, Clone Wars, there's a whole fleet of IG-88s on, on speeder bikes. It's awesome. It's, they're, they're terrifying. Because they've just got this evil red eye, and it's like, oh, God, these things are just going to kill us. I mean, if, if it was just a bunch of IG-88s just walking forwards, and if you actually saw them actually killing people, then that would be fine. I mean, Stormtroopers killed soldiers all over the shop. And if you're going to make battle droids, why make battle droids that you can disarm? Yeah, it just yeah, give them a gun on their own like the super battle droids. What's that? But they don't. They don't even need that. They just need a big gun stuck to their head. Or they could just be walking you know, cannons. And then, then there's the droid deckers, which is as they turn up and the Jedi are like, oh shit, we have no way of defeating these guys. Why not just have shit tons of droid deckers? Why not send exactly. them in I mean, first when they when it's like destroy what's left of them? Hold on a second, guys. Probably need droid deckers for this one. I, I, those are scary because they look like spiders, and people are frightened of spiders. But the the, the whole droid army thing to me is like the, a huge weakness in the whole premise that there's any any kind of threat. Yeah, when you stack up, I mean, even when we get to the later of the prequel movies, when it is pretty much the droids against the stormtroopers, we see the stormtroopers kicking ass. Mm. Yeah, they walk all over them because they've got superior tactics, and yeah, they're just. Superior weaponry, and the, the droids aren't even thinking or doing anything. They're just, you know, romping about the place like mannequins. Ugh. Well, they, they, they are the cannon fodder, yeah. and it's ridiculous because you never felt, as Sam was saying, you never felt with the with the you know the stormtroopers that they were cannon fodder. They were scary, even though they basically, especially for for the second and third movies, got shot to pieces. And, got, and in the first movie, they can't shoot. Yeah, <laughs> and by the third one, they're getting punked by teddy bears. Shall we talk about racism? Yes, we better. <laughs> Episode yes, one's a bit racist. Well, I think it leads on from the droid army thing, because the, the thing that struck me when I watched it this time, because I've obviously thought about the racism in it before, um, but the thing that struck me this time really uh, hard was the fact that the droid army look very much like Japanese experimental robots that are built by Honda and people like that. Mm-hmm. And then when you take the fact that the Trade Federation... The Neomoidians. ...all have... Very, yeah, have very oriental accents, and they are supposed to be some huge organization that really is only concerned about um, commercial gain and trade. Mm-hmm. Then it's it's a really thinly veiled 
metaphor for Japanese culture and Japanese And yet society. Star Wars is huge in Japan. It's a play on you know, Japanese corporate culture, mm. really, because they, they even have like the kind of sniveling lieutenants and stuff. And if you ever see any other kind of Western films where they portray Japanese co- corporations, and um, you know, a film like Rising Sun is a classic example mm. of that, they all do the same thing. The, you know, the, the head of the organisation is, you know, this sort of strapping old Japanese fellow who can speak good English and he's surrounded by snivelling arse kissers. Forgive my um, snivelling arse kisser. He has a very small penis. Another good example of that is Die Hard, you know, Nakatomi mm-hmm. Tower and he surrounds himself with these kind of... Ah, but Mr. Takagi had dignity. I liked him. Exactly, and that's the same with the Trade Federation. It's the but same Mr. Takagi will not be joining us for the rest of for his life. For the rest life. of his life. Awesome film. We should do one of them. But yeah, it's not not just the uh, Neomodians, not just the Japanese that uh, get get shot in this one. It's uh, yeah, there's anti-Semitism in there, at least according to you guys. You want to explain that one? <laughs> this is Zan's one. This is Zan's one because okay. uh, he puts it yeah. There. So so yeah, it's, it's Wado. Wado. Watto, who is a, effectively is a Jewish moneylender and shopkeeper. And again, panders to every kind uh, of Jewish stereotype. Possibly. Face palm at this point. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, he even has various kind of Yiddish phrases, you know, and it's always this thing that, you know, if, if someone is a slightly dodgy, underhand, um, trader, then for some reason they have to be Jewish, you know. Uh, he is a bit merchant of Venice, actually, now that you mention it. He is Fagin. He's got a child as a slave. da dee da dee da he's, he's a complete Fagin character. He's a little bit of the, the worst parts of the Arab stereotypes in there as well. Uh, in, well. In fact, a lot of Tatooine is. I mean, there's, again, because Tatooine, as you quite rightly said, features in so many of the films, there's a lot of parallels between Tatooine and, and you know, the Holy Land in, in, in Israel. Mm. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of that sort of... There's a lot of analogy in Star Wars and, and, and sort of really loose metaphors. Don't ever get me started on divine conception. No, but... Oh, we, no. <laughs> Save that we, for later. We're coming to that later. We'll leave the the, the most controversial racial stereotype to, to Neil, I think. Yeah, go for it, Neil. We're going to talk about the Gungans now. You know, for a long time, I thought that the most racist character in any movie that wasn't trying to have a racist character, had to be Jar Jar Binks. I have to say now that has been replaced by the twins from Transformers 2. (laughs) (laughs) That's a different conversation. He beat George Lucas. Yes. Here's your Nobel Prize. There's a lot of parallels between those two, I'm afraid. Oh, yes. But, I mean, how do you guys feel about the Gungans? They are, uh, as a race, they're interesting. If we go past the stereotype... If you ignore Jar Jar as a race, they were all right. But we don't really get to know them all that well. You know what? I don't even have to discuss why Jar Jar's arrested. Just watch him. It's It, it upset a lot of people at the time, and they said exactly that. And it's... It's too bad. And the worst thing that I think the thing that makes it absolutely appalling is obviously we've got the special, we've got the second disc. You watch the extra features. George doesn't even think of it that way. He goes, it's a great character for kids. Yeah. There's a lot of unthinking going on in this one. Yeah. I mean, again, if you watch, like you just said, if you watch the extras on the, on the DVD, it's quite clear that this is almost like an experiment. They wanted to create a wholly digital actor. Mm. Um, and they used um, performance capture, didn't they? To, to act, which you can't tell because it's because it's, it's awful. I guess it's, one of the, it's awful, but guess because one of the first ones as well. But Andy Serkis, it's not. Um, but um, they improved it for Yoda. They really did. Yeah, I get the impression with the Gungans, what they wanted to do is create an entire race of digital avatars, mm. so that they could say, "Look how clever Avatar. we are!" You know, so when they have that big battle, we've got 
you know, a whole load of aliens who are digitally created and a whole load of um, robots that are digitally created. The only point being yeah. that you don't give a shit about either side, not really, because there's no one... I have a horrible fear it's there's more to it than that. I think George Lucas doesn't like actors. Yeah. I don't think he does. Well, uh, one of my all they do is complain about- that they're, be- they're stuck on a, a blue background they don't know how to work. Well, let's not even go there, because I was watching the this last night. You can really tell their special effects don't hold up. But when you look back at the prequel trilogy, a lot of the time you sit there and go... It looks like a video game, mm. which really detaches you from the story. There's a certain, that's one of the reasons you love this story. There's a certain ragdoll effect with uh, sort of late 90s, early millennium CGI, where when things get tossed about like a, uh, you know, Neville Longbottom in the first Harry Potter, when he goes for his broomstick ride, you're like, that is not a real person. And your brain doesn't even have to go, wait a second, it just goes, effect... And it, it just yeah. kills it immediately. You're like, well, how did that pass testing? How did they go, yeah, that's fine? And interestingly enough, episode one is the most real of the three prequels. <laughs> There's the most Which real is set. That sentence. is terrifying, considering what we're coming up to. They were proud of the fact that nothing existed, really, in episode two. They said proudly, we didn't make a single piece of clone armor. And it's like, that's... That's, that's not a good thing. Look, one of the reasons you look at the original Star Wars movies, you look at the Millennium Falcon model, and we all know it's a model, but how detailed... It's covered in bits of airfix, it's awesome. You look at the trench run, it's just little bits of blocks, but it looks so much better than anything, than the, uh, the droid control ship that is orbiting Naboo. Mm. That just looks all smooth and shiny and clean, and you look at the Death Star and it's like grey and slightly dirty and feels used, it it just feels real. Yeah. It's the lived-in universe that's the secret of the uh, Star Wars OT. Right. I think, just before you finish on Jar Jar, I think the other heinous thing that was done with that character was to make him effectively com- uh, comic relief. Slapstick. Um, yeah, and... In fact, slapstick is used throughout The Phantom Menace. It's, like, overtly used all the time. Mm. There's loads of Three Stooges and there's loads of Marx Brothers gags. I mean, the worst one, the one that makes me slap my head every single time, are those little the droids. The pit droids, the, they're basically the Three Stooges. The, yeah, they, they, they slap yeah, each other. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> there are loads of, the, loads of little incidents like that. There's, there's things with the Gungans doing it as well. And I just think to myself, what is it they were trying to go for? They've got this dark, sinister story and yet they've overtly created artificial humour at every point all the way through it. And the sort of humour they've used, slapstick, is is the worst type of humour to use in something where you're trying to portray impending doom and, and fear and, and worry. It just doesn't fit. It's not a natural fit for that sort of thing. You know, it's uh, like you're, you're sort of getting finally into the story, and then he comes along and goes, ho, 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 don't worry, kids, it's all going to be all yeah. right. I mean, a, a But it's not going to be all right. Episode no. three kills everyone. He lied exactly. to us. The, the way you do it is kind of the way they did it in Empire, but again, don't want to cover that too much. You'll cover that in future no. shows, but where they use basically like Dunkirk spirit and it's all like um, um, gallows humour and black comedy, which is far more fitting for that type of um, environment where, you know, where you're trying to have this people living on the edge who could die at any moment. You know, it's a better fit rather than bloody slaps. So do you mean your time tunnel freeze before you reach the first marker? Then I'll see you in hell. Exactly.
One of the main problems Lucas faced in trying to bring us these stories was that he got trapped into the what must happen rather than focusing on characters. He had a big list of events that needed to happen and characters that had to exist and then strung them together along with a whole bunch of other stuff that held it together and characters with one job like Starship Captain or Head of Security and very little else to do. I tried this myself recently to see how he felt. I drafted an entirely different episode one with some of these characters, some of the unused characters from the original trilogy, and some I created myself. I came to find that poor George was in a fix from day one. It's really, really hard to work towards an established story without being forced down avenues of necessity. He was constrained by the fact that Anakin had to start training young because of the comment made by Yoda in Empire that Luke was too old. He had to make him a great pilot because Ben Kenobi tells Luke that he was already so when they first met, and this also meant he had to make Luke and Leia's mother all but a child as well, and a queen, otherwise folks would start asking why Leia was a princess. So she's an elected queen who defers to a committee for leadership guidance, a role rather similar to that of a prime minister or president. Then Obi-Wan has to be young enough not to be too old when Luke and Leia arrive. There can't really be a great evil threat in the galaxy because this is the balanced republic that gets overthrown, so already you can't have an all-powerful villain outwardly threatening our heroes. So it has to be more subtle, political, and complicated. You can have R2 and 3PO, but they won't be allowed to remember anything in case they end up with information that might change the whole story if they were to mention to Luke, oh yeah, you know that Darth Vader guy? He's totally your dad. Plus, he made me. You see the predicament he was in. A lesser writer would have choked and failed to deliver us a coherent script with a strong narrative. Sadly, George Lucas is a lesser writer. His finished film is a dense series of plot contrivances and nonsensical actions that have to be carried out to reach the next section. When it reached the final edit, it was like a tangled ball of yarn. Everything was attached to the body of the rest of the story, so he couldn't just delete whole scenes, or later ones wouldn't make any sense. The strange one I always seem to think is the whole Anakin... Padme story because Padme we're not quite sure of her age but you, you'd think being a queen that she's probably quite she's old. She's like 16 or something. Well the whole point I was, I was going to make is irrelevant to the age. The whole fact that there's meant to be some sort of romance or you know that there's going to be some sort of romance between Queen Amidala or Padme whatever you want to call her and Anakin Skywalker is a little bit creepy in that first mm, movie. Because it's like predetermined so you're like oh that's when they met and ooh. But he's like eight. Yeah. That's kind of wrong. I have the feeling that they went for someone that young because that was the demographic they were hoping to draw in because they know, you know, like I explained at the beginning, you know, I was five or six when the first Star Wars came out. So, and I saw Empire Strikes Back when I was eight or nine. So that was the demographic that they aimed the original trilogy Mm. at. And so they felt, okay, well, if we put a, you know, eight, nine-year-old in at the start, then we're going to draw people into this new franchise yeah, who get the are kiddies. not fans of the original. Uh, she's 14, think... by the way, in episode one. 14. Okay, so let's say, well, how old is he supposed to be? He's supposed to be nine, nine isn't he? That's still a weird five-year five year gap at that age. You know, Yeah, it's weird. A 14-year-old girls are very different from <clears throat> nine-year-old boys. You know. Careful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's absolutely right. The fact is that her relationship with Anakin in this film is paternal. Is ma- sorry, not paternal. Maternal. You know, it, it doesn't make any sense why a maternal relationship would develop into anything else later on. It's likely to always remain maternal. Mm. And that's what makes it... The other creepy thing is, of course, that he's one actor in one film and then he's a much, much older actor in the next film, but it's still the same girl. You're like, ooh. Yeah, it, it just, that is the biggest continuity flaw in the entire six films you know the fact that they you know was such a simple elementary mistake and I, I don't think you would actually change the story in any way if you made him 13 or 14 other than you'd make him a bit more angsty mm. you know it wouldn't actually fundamentally change the, the 
what little plot there is of the Phantom Menace by having him slightly older. I mean, all you have to do is have Yoda go, he is too old. And you go, yeah, we're going to train him anyway. And that, therefore, you've already completely circumvented this whole knot you've tied yourself up in. Yeah, it's, it's a bizarre decision. And it, I think it actually it ruins what should have been the, the central theme of the, the prequels by starting him out too young, mm. which then raises questions in subsequent films. Okay, let's have a little word on character. In making these movies, George hoped to mirror or rhyme the original trilogy with character analogues, so Leia is Amidala, etc. This way you'd feel like you were watching the originals. His main fuck-up, and it is a colossal one, is that none of these characters have any of the diversity and spark of any of the originals. Many of them are heavily diluted or even split among individuals. Luke seems pretty simple. He's Anakin, right? The farm boy from Tatooine who dreams of more. Well, yes and no. In Episode 6, Jedi, he's also young Obi-Wan the grave beyond his years and well-meaning Jedi. This film's Anakin, the kid, Jake Lloyd, is the closest his character ever gets to Luke. From here on, the character diverges wildly into someone genuinely dislikable, arrogant and megalomaniacal. We could have put up with the yippee and the cuteness if he'd grown into someone vaguely resembling Luke, who was likable the whole way through. But Obi doesn't get the chance to do much in this one either, aside from his spectacular saber skills and complaining on a ship. Leia is not Amidala. Leia is dignified and regal, true, but she's also fiery and stubborn with a cocky tone and balls of steel. Cocky and balling. (laughs) (laughs) Amidala is a wet mop who does nothing but talk in monotone about how things are dire, people are dying, and where she has to be and what she has to do. She's basically a walking womb with a crown on top, just waiting for Anakin's midi-chlorian-rich deposit. (laughs) Am I wrong? Don't say the M-word. Jar Jar is basically... Yep. The goofball fish out of water for the kids to laugh at. The fatal flaw is that in A New Hope, we start with the droids and get to see intergalactic civil war from the perspective of a hobbit, the smallest, most insignificant being caught up in the conflict. We share their anxieties and sense of desperation to reach safety, even if it is comical. They bicker and bounce off one another and form a symbiotic bond that holds the first movies together. When we meet Jar Jar, there's no time to stop and find out who he is. Think about it. If Jar Jar had stopped falling over, stepping in shit, getting farted on by aliens, getting his tongue stuck in places it shouldn't be stuck in, and unfailingly not amusing all around him, no one laughs at Jar Jar. If he'd stopped that for five minutes and just had a one-to-one conversation with Padme about his life in exile, his fear that Naboo would fall, and his sense of hopelessness that he was unable to really help in any way, then we'd have genuinely felt a little more for him and his worth as a character would have been proved. 3PO's part in episode one is just to turn up and have Anakin claim he built him. That's bollocks. There are protocol droids throughout this series of exactly the same model. The correct phrasing Anakin is salvaged from a junk pile. 3PO existed before this film. He was made by a factory. If he wasn't, he'd look different to the other protocol droids. But he doesn't, because he was. It's it's like Anakin saying, look, I've made this car all by myself out of nothing. It's a Fiat Punto, Anakin. I, I know I've kind of set the, the bar high by saying that, you know, casting the young boys Anakin was the biggest mistake they made with the prequels. But for me, the, the second biggest mistake was even having those two droids in it at all. Because for me, their story starts in a new home. I disagree. I think they could have bound together but, the prequel trilogy and then just had their memories erased. But, uh, yeah, okay. I mean, that's, that's a... That's a plot device isn't it but I mean in, in, put it like in, this the, the one that I wrote for episode my version of episode one it starts with 3PO having his mind erased and he comes and sort of sits down next to R2 and go oh who are you R2-D2 pleased to meet you and R2 goes <laughs> because basically they've gone through this again and again and again and it's like 
Oh, I see. So every trilogy, he gets his memory erased. All they had to do in the in episode one was have you know if they wanted to have an R two unit, have one of the um the ones with the square heads because basically they're supposed to. <laughs> you be mean R five D four or whichever one he was? You know, he gets shot off the top anyway. <laughs> they all Are do. you saying you don't yeah. want R two in this? I mean, R two was actually no. spot on in this. He was just R two, a joy to behold. Yeah, I, I think it was a mistake to have the the, the two drawers in the original series in it because they gave four, five, and six continuity. And I think by putting them in this in these early ones in the way they did, mm. it, it started to it, it was too contrived. Are you saying that these used it, to be over did. there, and then they went here, and then they went back again? They had their memory erased. This rubbish. It, <laughs> it does feel like that they, they are in the prequel trilogy because they're there. Look, guys, it's the one. Yeah. It's the droids from the next. They lot. could have had a cameo. I mean, R two D two could have had a cameo in the third one or something. Believe me, I don't think they add much to the prequel trilogy, but it is nice that they're there and they're at least handled better than most of the other characters. Okay, Qui-Gon, basically filling in for old Obi-Wan. If there's a hero in episode one, it's him, but he's a bit boring. Having your hero also be Basil Exposition is a bad idea. Now, Vader is the second biggest presence not felt in this movie. Because of the phantomish nature of Sidious, he's not able to directly talk to anybody aside from Newt Gunray and Rune Harko, the racist Fu Manchu stereotype near Mordians. Effectively, he menaces Jack shit. Maul is a dazzling, lethal attacker that they are unaware of until halfway through the movie and then seem to conveniently forget about until he turns up at the end and pawns Qui-Gon Jinn. He's a sword, little more, and while he's a cool sword and plastered all over the merchandising, he made little to no lasting impact on the story aside from leaving Anakin with an unfit tutor. A falling piano or some bad shellfish could have dispatched Qui-Gon in exactly the same way. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say so badly now, Jedi Kill of the Week. Nice. (laughs) Vader is key. In fact, he's so key to Star Wars that we all trooped into the cinemas three more times to watch him come to life. Six years and six hours of unfulfilling pap later, he turned up, cried like a girl, folded his arms, and then the credits rolled. Imagine how different it would have been if he'd actually been born at the end of the first, or even the second picture, to an adult Anakin, and stalked Jedi across one or two more edge-of-the-seat chase movies. Oh. I agree. I agree. I think that's a that's a very good point. I mean, when, over three films, you've got the luxury of, you know, uh, breaking up and pacing that story, that that kind of uh, evolution into Vader as you wish. But I, personally, if it would be me, I'd have I'd have had it so that at the end of the second film it yeah. becomes Vader, and so the third, third film is about what like, he does. It's basically, Vader going batshit mental, hunting down Jedi, killing them. They get it all done in an afternoon. Yeah, I'd actually like to say which, which well, yeah, which, but which Vader? Because the interesting thing to me, I was hoping to see was Darth Vader, but not Darth Vader in the suit, but Darth Vader the man. Yeah, not like well, not Hayden Christensen, not stalking about with his, you know, basically murdering children. But um, what the emo? I would have are. really liked to see like a prototype Darth Vader. But uh, so basically, you get the actor, and then he gets horribly maimed and gets put in like a cyberpunky sort of half Vader sort of like trying their best with what they've got at the time suit and then basically that gets evolved until so by the, the you know the middle end of the uh, third one he basically puts on the rest of it going back to your um, Darth Maul I mean Darth Maul was such a cool character he was great and yet again woefully underused it's you know. fuck all to do I mean he could have basically been 
just, I mean, if they weren't going to have Vader in the first one, just had Maul chasing them the whole way through and then basically just trying to escape from him, like the Bourne identity the whole time, that would have been great. That would have given us a real oh, sense yes. of pace. Yeah. That's the premise they, they, they set up, but then they never right. actually He just turns up so. once, has a fight, they fly away, and they're like, oh, I wonder who that was. <laughs> Speaking of that... <laughs> it was a Sith! It's obviously a Sith! Have you not studied your holocrons? The other thing is... He was trained in the Jedi we... arts. No, he was a Sith! I was going to say, you know when we first have that first initial fight with Darth Maul, mm-hmm. where um, Qui-Gon's taking Anakin back to the ship, it feels like these are part there missing is. to that. He was supposed to fight Obi-Wan. All right, cause, cause it, this just feels like the, the, there's Anakin, there's, uh, there's Qui-Gon, they're suddenly running, and then sudden, there's Darth Maul, I'm like, hang on, it feels like we should have yep. seen something They else. added a CGI Maul on a bike, flying in and jumping around. Basically, he was supposed to fight Obi-Wan for quite a while before Qui-Gon and Anakin turn up. But, uh, no, they, they got rid of that because they thought it would somehow diminish the awesome fight at the end. Oh, I can't wait to talk about the fight oh, at yeah. the end. So there's no standout villain, just a bunch of supply teachers. But the biggest, most horrendous oversight in the prequels with regard to character is the Han Solo-shaped hole in all three of them. Han was instrumental to the original Star Wars films. That nagging doubt you have about Return of the Jedi is because he was a bit lame in that one. Ford campaigned with George Lucas to let them kill Han, but instead he gets an okay ending with not much else to do but help the rebels. Otherwise he would have had a great sort of, I'll I'll talk about this one in in Jedi and Empire episodes, his arc was going to be selfish bastard who ends up as basically a martyr. Oh. Yes, yeah, so we're doing a fantastic arc for that. Get character. rid of it. Don't watch. Just, just have him, just have him marry the princess. It's nice. Now, I think when I was a kid, if I'd seen that, I'd have been like, no! But as an adult, I'd be like, yep, absolutely. That's what should have happened. Okay. That's like, that's like the modern equivalent of Dumbledore. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, makes, you know, I'm, you know, I quite like Harry Potter. And it, without them, without her doing that, we would have made the series that much weaker. Yeah. His absence is felt in these films like that of a missing loved one. There's nobody to crack wise, nobody to scoff at the Jedi and their hokey religions and ancient weapons. There's nobody to go through an arc of being a charming, selfish prick who becomes a slightly less selfish, charming prick. There's no Chewbacca until this joyless, minute-long cameo in Episode 3. There's no Falcon, no piracy, no scandals, no clash with Jabba. Nobody shoots first, nobody oozes natural charisma and swaggers about. Instead, we get stiff competent actors standing in a green room and being told which tennis ball to be not very convincingly scared of. Lucas realised this for episode two and tried to give Obi and Annie some banter and make Anakin a bit more arrogant, but coupled with his snivelling voice and leaden delivery, Hayden Christensen comes off as just a selfish prick. You take the bad boy and the blackest bad guy in the galaxy out of Star Wars, and what you're left with is a galaxy with no honest thieves and no stalking threat. You're left with monks fighting battle droids for political reasons. Okay, earlier you talked about Qui-Gon being the Obi-Wan Kenobi of this Star Wars movie, even though you know, he being the the, the the learned master, the teacher, the wise one. But you see throughout the movie where he does some very questionable things where he cheats Watto, he ups Watto's bet, he uses the Jedi mind trick on the Gungans. So almost in essence, you could argue that Qui-Gon Jinn is sort of the Han as well. He seems, seems to be a mix of Obi-Wan from episode four and, and Han Solo. He's He's about the closest character in this movie that is Han-esque, but without the charm. Mm. But that that charm is all important. I mean, ultimately, Liam Neeson's wooden throughout the whole thing. So it's, you know, even, basically, if you'd given a not especially, or no, if you'd given a good actor the Han Solo role, he could have done it. 
but you wouldn't have gotten Harrison Ford acting as, you know, as, as the most charming, fun, interesting pirate in the galaxy. It's like saying, well, Liam Neeson could have played Captain Jack Sparrow. Don't make it fucking Jack Sparrow. <laughs> That's true. There is no hand in these yeah. movies. His lack of presence or a lack of a hand-like character is felt throughout those movies. It's a lack of grey area. Yeah, which, I mean, for essence, yes, Qui-Gon does some very questionable things. He uses the Force to cheat Watto in the Game of Chance. He uses the Jedi mind trick on the Gungans. But not really is... in a fun way. You're no, just at that point... A, with means to an end During way. that betting situation, like, oh, come on, just... I mean, at that point... I, okay, Plinkett said this. Why not just choke Watto, take the hyperdrive, if you're going to cheat him out of it anyway, and say, right, you, you'll disable the boy's chip, or I'm going to kill you right now with my lightsaber. I mean, if you're going to basically pull one over on him anyway, you might just go the whole hog. Look, he, fucking George Lucas wrote himself into this hole. He wrote the whole, oh, yeah, they've got a special chip in them that blows up. Yeah, which is very wedlock, which is a really cheesy 1980s movie with Rooker Hewitt. It's also The Running Man. Yes, and The Running Man. But... Uh, there is a lack of that. The lack of that sort of hand-like character does leave a big hole. And you know, there is something missing from the prequel trilogy. They, they just, they, there they is a lot missing, missing from it. <laughs> There's a lot, but one of the most important things is their heart and soul. In the characters seem to have no heart and soul. Whether it be Hayden Christensen or, you know, Ewan McGregor is a fantastic choice for everyone. Mm, but he was given no room. He was just basically restrained and restrained and restrained. He was like, once those droids take control of the surface, they will take control of you. Yeah, and you have Samuel L. Jackson as a Jedi Knight. Oh, okay, he doesn't really play a bigger role. You believe it's this boy? Yep. (laughs) His character is atrocious. nothing to do. Even Yoda is boring. Mm. Gary? I mean, mean, to be fair, um, episode four... The acting's pretty wooden. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying the acting's fantastic in, in any of the <laughs> I mean, uh, Star Wars films. I mean, the, the, the Harrison Ford has the best character in that, mainly because Harrison Ford is such a fantastic actor. I think you could give Harrison Ford any crappy script and he could probably turn it around. See, after he finished playing Indian, and started playing Concerned Dads, I kind of tuned out. Yeah. But he can still do it. That's the thing. He can. He's such a talented actor that he can turn his hands to, to most things like that. I think the only thing he can't really do is comedy. I mean, if you've seen him in a few comedy films. Isn't that funny? Because he's so funny. <laughs> Around all the serious people, he's the funniest guy there. Yeah. He's, yeah, I think he, he's, he's, witty, he's witty, isn't he, basically? But, I mean, if you see someone like American Graffiti, where he has a, a kind of comic role, he's pretty pretty dire at that. But <laughs> most of the other films he's made, he's, 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 like I said, he's sensationally good. He can turn his hand to anything, really. And he can turn certainly turn a badly written character into something that has a lot of screen presence and a lot of... I mean, just uh, imagine if Kurt Russell had got the job of being Han Solo. Well, actually, to be fair, I think Kurt Russell would is similar, actually, I think. Kurt Russell doesn't really... I mean, he's been in some bad films, but normally you, you don't come away from it thinking, oh, I, I didn't really enjoy watching Kurt Russell. He was wooden. He's very rarely wooden. I wouldn't say that. Wasn't but, it Tom um, Selleck was going to be indie as well? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like yeah, Tom exactly, Selleck, yeah. but he's not... He wouldn't have made one of he's the greatest so. characters of all cinema history. Uh, he made Magnum P.I. Uh, and to be fair, I think a lot of our affection for the characters in the in the original trilogy stems from the second film, where they were, where the actors were given a lot more free license to develop the characters. Oh, yes. So I mean, you're talking you'll talk about that when you do that show, but there's, there's a whole crapload of ad libbing in that film. We'll talk about that later. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to say one word to you guys. Just react as you wish. Midichlorians. Fuck. <laughs> no. 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 Why? 
Why did you have to explain the Jedi? <laughs> we didn't need an explanation. It was fine as it was. No, it has to be these tiny little microscopic organisms. There's what? a bit where Jake Lloyd goes, Qui-Gon, the other day you mentioned midichlorians. What are they? I'd like to know. No, you don't. You just had to say that because it was in the script. Script. These midichlorian counters very... It doesn't... Oh... Who why did that piss off so many people? I mean, I know why it pisses me off, but I'm just wondering why everyone was so angry about it. Oh, yeah, I didn't have as much of a problem with it as what a lot of people did. I mean, it's the the exposition when he talks about being, you know, sort of microscopic organisms, blah, 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 then that is a bit ridiculous. So you're meant to it, was, it was just basically because it's so contrary to what Yoda says in Empire. I've had people who basically are moved to tears when they hear Empire going, Life creates it. Makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us, combines us. Luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. You must feel the force around you. Here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes, even between the land. That's what everyone always wanted God to be. And then they come along and go, that's all right, it's like germs, basically. It's like, what? (laughs) No, you're taking away the thing we like about it, for God's sake. I was, when I watched it again, I was very careful to pay specific attention to what he said uh, when they're talking about the the metachlorians. That's not what they say, actually. They're not saying that the force is caused by metachlorians. They're saying that are intelligent microscopic life forms that live symbiotically inside the cells of all living things. When present in sufficient numbers, they could allow their symbiont to detect the pervasive energy field known as the force. Force. So basically, what they're what they're effectively saying it's is dust. They, no, no, these are indicators of a life form that can feel the force. So it's a bit like um, in you know humans, where say someone has a high white blood cell count that can make them... Produce um, a lot more pus. You know, yeah, yeah, basically you have a hyperactive immune system. Or, say, a long-distance runner, you know, someone who does marathons and stuff, they tend to have a much higher red blood cell count, which means they're more susceptible to colds and things like that. So if you were to take a sample of their blood, you would see that they have elevated levels of, you know, certain things like dopamines and, 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 and other kinds of um, uh, chemicals, as well as higher levels of uh, red blood cells in their blood, which would give you an indication of their, the kind of lifestyle or what that is they do, what their physical condition is. So... I think that's – I'm kind of playing devil's advocate a bit. But for me, that's how what I read into that. It's a kind of – this is our way of, of you know, physically checking that someone genuinely can feel the force. Well, can't you just go, I sense he is extraordinarily strong in the force? The entire audience would go, well, yeah, you would, because that's what happens in the yeah, original trilogy. It didn't, it didn't, need, it didn't, didn't need, need explanation. It. No, it didn't so need it says explanation. Here, they're not saying – they're not saying they caused the force. They're saying that they are a something which is present in things that feel the force, the which force. I can kind of go along with. It says I think what irrita- the thing that irritates me is we didn't need it. We don't no. need an explanation of the force. We know that they're Jedi. They have powers. We're fine with that. We long ago accepted that. We don't need an explanation of how or why. And he never mentions it again. It's, it doesn't even come in in any it's, way handy. It's basically just a way of it's saying everyone's like, oh. No, because it's just a medical test to prove that this that this child is somehow... Right, special. however, it also holds brings up a really difficult plot point that Lucas was too chicken to actually work his way out of. Right, it says the uh, normal human levels are 2,500 
midichlorians per cell, whereas Anakin uh, has over 20,000 per cell. It has possibly been conceived by the midichlorians. Right. Which makes no sense, but we'll carry on. The, <clears throat> the problem is this. When the Jedi Council are observing and talking to Anakin and go, right, this guy's got the Force running all through him, they're like, oh, well, no, we're, we're going to train him? No, we're not going to train him. But they don't suggest an alternative. What are they going to do? Just send him back to work on a farm? You know, this guy, something's going to happen regarding the Force with this guy at some point. You, you know, you can't avoid that. Now, what Lucas was basically avoiding was Yoda talking to Mace Windu in a back room somewhere going, kill him, we must. Because what else are you going to do? You can, uh, basically, it's been discussed in the books that you can actually shut people off from the Force. Obviously, that's, Lucas didn't want to even go there. That would be the only way to deal with Anakin safely. Shut him off from the Force and go, right, you know, go off, enjoy your life, that's fine. Um, and Because if you send him out there untrained, he's going to come back to you in a bad way. If you give him to someone who's incompetent, Obi-Wan, he's going to come back to you in a bad way. So Yoda should either have said, right, cut him off from the Force, kill him, or I'll train him. And the funny thing is, I mean, he's meant to be more powerful than Yoda. Yep. So, I mean, basically, those are, you know, three options that Yoda never suggested. He just, he just went, all right, <laughs> if you promise Qui-Gon, then I suppose it's okay. No! Okay, yeah. Everyone's talking about bringing balance to the Force. Now, I'm going to talk about bringing balance to the Force in the episode three one, but basically, it's not good. Well, no, yeah. that's, that's like the opposite of what they yeah. want. Like, this is the boy who's going to bring balance to the Force? That's terrible. We don't want that. <laughs> Well, he sort of did. No, no, he does. He does, yeah. Because, <laughs> he does. Because, because you have the Sith and the Jedi, and there's supposed to be this balance between yeah. the two that went on for millennia. There's, there's, what, dozens if not hundreds of Jedi. Okay, we will talk about it now. There's dozens if not hundreds of Jedi just knocking about the place, and two Sith that the Jedi are unaware of because they're stupid. They're wa- <laughs> I mean, they're in the same fucking room as him! And they're like, hmm, I sense something, but I don't know. Maybe it's just because he's a politician. And not at any point does Yoda go, it's him. Tim, it's Palpatine. Tim, 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 Tim. And get him. Yeah. No, because he's, he's so clever. It, he's so, like, subtle about it. He's not the least bit subtle. Okay, right. So there's loads of Jedi and only two Sith. What Anakin does uh, is help uh, from Sidious kill everyone apart from two Jedi, Obi-Wan and Yoda. So there's balance. Two and two. Balance is a bad thing. <laughs> balance bad. Balance bad. But it's true. The, the force is balanced. It, two Sith. It yep. works in uh, Knights of the Old Republic because you've got the Sith school and you've got the Jedi school and they balance each other out. But obviously, if you're like a, a decadent and some, somewhat decaying Jedi temple full of Jedi just going all over the place, if, you, if you're thinking balance to the force, that's either... Like, a giant army of Sith that they're going to have to contend with, which, by the way, would have been really fucking cool. Or, yes. or all of them dying. So if, if they think it's Anakin, they have to deal with it, and they don't. And the funny thing is, it's such a happy movie, yet we this is big shit. The Phantom Menace in this movie or isn't the Sith. It's the fact we all know that this big, horrible thing is going to happen. Right. Let's finish off and talk about the lightsaber battle. Uh, the jewel of the fates. Forever, 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 
Now, this is going to be really hard for me to say because for so long, all I wanted out of Star Wars movies was more and more lightsaber battles. And when I saw this for the first time, I was blown away. It stands up as well, even today. Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan versus Maul is dazzling. But... When you get down to what it's really all about, you have an athlete and two well-trained actors performing a highly choreographed dance, whilst on screen you get two confused but determined Jedi fighting a lightsaber windmill. Plinkett says, and I agree with him, that the best lightsaber fights are not so much about what's happening in the swordplay, but what's going on emotionally. Obi-Wan vs. Vader in A New Hope is charged with decades-old resentment and hate. Luke vs. Vader in Empire is a skilled warrior running rings around a young man he's trying to manipulate, followed by a classic revelation. Jedi has to be the best fight of all because it's all about Luke wrestling with his darkest side and realizing that to defeat the evil without, he has to concede to the evil within. It's all about not wanting to taint Leia with the shadow that's gripping him and it's about Vader's conflict in wanting to overpower his master whilst at the same time serving him to destroy his son for the light inside him or save him from the darkness. Obi and Qui-Gon have no idea who Maul is and... They just know he means to harm them. Maul hates the Jedi, and that's all we know. Almost no characterization, just kung fu with lightsabers. And again, as Plinkett says, the one moment it changes, when Qui-Gon gets murdered in front of him, and Obi-Wan is gripped by a fierce, bloody rage, in that moment when he should go all out on Maul and beat him down like Luke beats down his father in Jedi, when Obi is ready to show us the extent of his wrath, he just does the same thing he did earlier, but a bit angrier and a bit faster pirouetting graceful acrobatics and perfectly placed sword strokes you know he's angry but you don't really feel it because it looks so stunning and skillful anger isn't about how fast you can flip and dodge anger is clumsy and brutal and palpable in delivering us the most spectacular lightsaber fight in history lucas and his cronies removed obi-wan's valuable character development discuss well, <laughs> yeah, thank um, you. Can we add anything to that? Because it pretty much hits the nail on the head. The moment that Qui-Gon falls, you see the anger, the pain, the emotion. No! And then he gets released from, I don't know what, because I will get onto the room in a minute. He gets released, and then he pirouettes. Some it's more. such a great scene. You're like, oh, yeah, this is so kick-ass. But if you really think about it, it's just like, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out. Now you put your foot here, and I will swing up here. And it's awesome. But... But when you look at that scene in Return of the Jedi where Luke snaps and he just starts wailing, there is no. He's using his lightsaber like a baseball bat. Yeah, he's just beating him down. That's what I was expecting, and then it doesn't. And Vader's like, actually, I kind of deserve this one. Ah! I mean, if you look at the original uh, three films for five and six, all the sword plays basically uh, people fight with broadswords, and um, uh, Alec Guinness was coached by Bob Anderson. Bob Anderson. Who was actually in the Darth Vader suit at times. Okay, well, I didn't know that. Okay, For these sword fights, yeah. Um, so, effectively, they're kind of bludgeoning each other with the, with the swords. It's not sort of... Uh, there's no sort of flourishes or anything like that. It's all yeah. kind of just whack, whack, whack. And um, Well, they excused in themselves in the fact that it was an old man, a part mechanical man, and a young boy who was never really trained properly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, precisely. And then if you look at the... Um, the, the newer trilogy and not even talking about what Yoda does um, in the in the Phantom <laughs> Menace that, that's more on that next fight. week yeah that sword fight is basically martial arts and it's like two people with pretending to have samurai swords and one guy with I don't know what you call the big pole thing but and a low staff with swords at either end 
Yeah, one of those, one, whatever one of those MacGuffins is. And basically, it's a huge. It's a. It's just like a Jackie Chan movie. You know, it's all sort of heavily choreographed, lots of sort of leaps and rolls, and you know, and it looks it looks stunning. But the reality is that if you were wielding something as lethal as a lightsaber, you'd have chopped off your own arm and leg by that. <laughs> Even if you were a Jedi. Even if you were a Jedi, yeah. I mean, all the, the Star Wars fans out there are going, no, because they had the Force. Yeah, but I mean, I I actually really enjoyed the, the Wizard did it. I really enjoyed the, the sword fight at the end of the Phantom Menace. I don't, I don't really have a I didn't really have a problem with it until you guys had said about it. I'm sorry, but it's it's the truth. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of see it, and also. They don't strike me as stabbing weapons, so I wasn't quite sure why, you know, uh, the murder of Gigan was done as a stab because they're not. They're not. It's not like he's using a, a rapier or a or a foil. It's know, because he's... cutting his head clean off would have been a bit too much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, with those swords, I mean, you you just basically slash people to death with them. I mean, you I, yeah, because he had to live long enough to tell uh, Obi Wan to train the boy. Yeah. He, could have he, had still have, he had to have a head. <laughs> yeah, he had to have a head. Which means that he was still alive throughout that whole thing, so he could basically have used the Force while Maul was whacking away at Obi-Wan to basically, like, blow him backwards or something. Done something. And even the end to that fight is really unsatisfying. I'm hanging there, I'm hanging there. And Maul gets punked. <laughs> I pull the sword, I jump. But you listen, you watch the third one, when Anakin's still on the raft and he's and, think, oh, and Obi-Wan's got the high ground. And what right. does Obi-Wan say to him? Don't do it, Anakin, I have the high ground. Right, don't get me started, because remember when have talked about the prequels already, an excellent podcast all about uh, you know old movies. They go mental during the I have the high ground moment, because basically it doesn't make any fucking difference. If you're Obi-Wan and you're down there, you win. If you're Obi-Wan and you're up there, you win. The way that you win is be Obi-Wan. <laughs> it's true. Seriously. It's, the high ground means nothing in that scenario. They're fucking Jedi. Well, it's not like he's an archer or something anyway. I mean, <laughs> it makes no It's not an extended siege. There's different attacks for both scenarios. He basically goes, huh? And looks at Obi-Wan in a kind of, I, I can see, uh, something's going on. I'm not really sure. I mean, I've, I've displayed lightning fast reflexes before, but I'm just going to sit there and watch. He literally is like, as Obi-Wan rises up in front of him, he's like, wow, look at him go. Turns around, oh, down I go. And it's like everything you built up Maul to be just destroyed in one go. I must admit, when I saw it in the cinema, that was probably the most disappointing part of the film for me when he was killed. Because I thought they've established this, what looks like a really cool character. And I've not really found out about much about him at all. And, you know, at the time I was thinking, well, maybe he'll carry on to the second and third film. Nope. No. <laughs> Waste no. him. Get rid of Qui-Gon, get rid no. of all your best two characters. Let's replace him with an 85-year-old man in the next film, you know? <laughs> Just oh, next week, logic. we will talk next about week, Tyrannus. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so a couple of final things before we go. Plot holes, just a couple. I'm going to mention a few that Plinkett mentions because they're just so insightful. Okay, you know that bit where he goes, We've got to warn the Naboo and contact Chancellor Valorum. Let's split up, stow aboard separate ships and meet down on the planet. Why? 
back on the, you know, this is back on the droid ship. Yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Why is it safer that way? You double the chances that you're going to be found. You halve the chances of being able to defend yourself. And if you land on two completely different areas of the planet, you're going to be miles away from each other. Why go down in separate ships? Doesn't make any sense. Also. When they land on Naboo and they meet Jar Jar and they swim to Gunga City and he goes, you've got to swim through the planet core to get to the other side of the planet to get to the Theed Palace and warn the Queen that the army's invading. A, the army's invading. It's bloody obvious the army's invading. Well, no, And B, why it. did the army invade on the other side, the of, side the planet, of the planet and then yeah. travel thousands of miles? At, at about five miles an hour. What is the point? <laughs> Oh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. We've just, before we saw on the droid ship at the start of the movie that, hey, Jedi can hold their breath for a fairly long time, yet yep. they need breathers to go down to the Gungan city. Yep. Uh, Jedis can run at super speed. They could be like Speedy Gonzales when the droid actors turn up. Unless their, their master's fighting Darth Maul, then they go, I better run as fast as I can, but I've got to make sure I do a little twirl with my lightsaber three times on the way down. Oh, and because and, I didn't do it in the previous bit about the fight. What the hell is that room that they're fighting in? It's a thing. It's a sort of power room that could power the entire Death Star. <laughs> it's got a pit that goes to infinity as well. And and on your, your droid controlling spaceship, why is the main power core in what appears to be the hangar? It's, it's, it's guarded with plastic. Totally exposed. How does a... This is the weak point. Let's hope nobody shoots it. It reminds me of the Blue Harvest. So this Death Star is completely undestroyable. Yes. What about this bit here, this hole? Can we just put, like, plywood over it or something? Nah, leave it open. It's an exhaust port. How does a starfighter, or a Naboo starfighter, get through the shields and into the, the, the hangar bay any, in the middle of a battle when it's got its shields up? There's a really good fight in the um, uh, deleted scenes where Greedo teases Anakin, little young Greedo, and Anakin goes, and basically jumps on him and pounds him. It's like, whoa, this kid's got something. They took that out. There's a bit where they mention Bail Antilles of Alderaan, the other guy who's basically running for Chancellor. That's basically Bail Organa or Captain Antilles. It's quite possible George fucked up and forgot who was who. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's basically it's like him being called Kevin Jones and like Bale and Antilles are really popular older around names. Look, they could be. <laughs> I have a question for you, gentlemen. Which is the least Star Wars of the Star Wars films? Empire Strikes Back. Strikes Back. Jesus, I was thinking you guys were going to think about that for a while. Yeah, I was, it surprised the hell out of me. I was watching them. I was thinking, which. Which is the least Star Warsy? Because obviously the prequels are all like each other, and they're all sort of trying to ape the original Star Wars. And Jedi g- kind of goes back to that. It goes back to the sort of the Ewok, you know, being like taking the speeder bike and going woo 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 and spinning round. There's none of that in Empire. It's all just a tight chase movie, and it's like a different universe almost. It stands out now. Okay, and the best bit of the Phantom Menace. Uh, I tell you what, I'm going to let you guys, um, you choose your best bits and I'll say my best bit. I'll let Zang go first. Well, I would like to say the pod race. <laughs> You'd like no. to, but it's it's two laps too long. It's it's badly edited. It's too long. It goes on and on. And fuck it goes it on, on and on. It was when great I, the first time I saw it, but then the next... Oh when I was watching it uh, yesterday, uh, I watched actually watched it during my lunch hour that bit because I watched the 
I watched an hour on the train on the way to work. I watched some at lunchtime, and then I watched some on the way home. I actually fell asleep during the pod race. <laughs> Understandable. Just... I think my, my fondness... It's like watching Formula One. My fondness <laughs> for the pod race, I think it's polluted by the fact that I had the pod race on the N64, which I loved. No. So I kind of... I think I'm. I think of. Pl- I'm think I'm playing that rather than actually watching it. But you mean episode one, Pod Racer's Revenge? Uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Good. Cool. Yeah. Nice callback. Yeah. Um, I really struggle. <laughs> I, I. Yeah. I suppose that and the lightsaber battle at the end. Even though we've discussed, as we've discussed, it's ultimately flawed. But I think the Pod Race had it been edited down and not had. It, it, even within the pod race, a complete lack of consistency in the fact that his pod goes 100 times faster than all the others and he almost gets lapped and yet manages to catch up within another lap. Right. You know, all those kind of inconsistencies. At least it is dramatic and it is, it kind of looks good. Oh, it's one of the best bits of the film, but it is tiresome. I mean, it, it obviously apes things like Ben Hur and stuff, but mm. I, I, I think it is the highlight of the film anyway, of a very poor film the evil side of me wants to say it's the end credits because it's over but I guess I guess really the highlight has got to be the the lightsaber fight yes it's lacking emotion but it is you're drawn into the excitement oh it's spectacular I still love the lightsaber fight that's my second favourite bit actually I've just thought of something which is awesome in Phantom Menace which Mm -hmm. is the music yes John Williams music we haven't mentioned it but uh, yeah excellent score from John Williams and that actually brings me to my favourite bit it's actually a combination of John Williams and Ben Burt you know you said the end credits jokingly yes at the very end of the very last bit of the end credits it's Anakin's theme and it's the end of Anakin's theme it goes like this shivers because at that point when you first saw it you're like this is gonna be good we're actually gonna get to see vader and it's a lie because you don't see him till sith but that little distant promise that little sound the the one sound that gives you the worst thing ever it gives you a new hope Hope. where I was going and you believed the lie you thought maybe next film or at least early on in the one after I don't know maybe we'll get something vaguely resembling Star Wars A New Hope or Empire Strikes Back or Return of the Jedi we'll get Vader before we play you guys out with this final bit of music have a listen to the fantastically moody Emperor's theme from Return of the Jedi
this next piece is the happy flip side of that song when everything was going great. The irony, I'm sure, was not lost on John Williams. So yeah, that's, that's the Phantom good. Menace. <laughs> right, so we will see you guys next week. I have fucking loved this. Cannot wait for more. Okay, so until next week, I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Neil Taylor. I've been Gary's anterior blog. And <laughs> I can't say happy trails, so may the force be with you. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't not. <laughs>